This time in Novell Open Audio, we'll be talking about customized installs from Suzu Media and Internet Telephony. Welcome to Novell Open Audio, the podcast that connects the Novell user community with what's going on inside and around the Novell universe. I'm your host, Aaron Quill. I'm David Mayer. And I'm Randy Goddard. Guys, how's it going? It's been a while since we've had a chance to all sit down together. Yeah, I think that's because you've been away a little, haven't you? Uh, pretty much. Got a lot of, lot of work going on right now. So the last time we had Guy in, and I mentioned to Guy that I was going to go over to the Sousa offices to get information for OpenSUSE. Remember, he told us, he was like, you got to go find out about Kiwi. Well, today we're going to find out about Kiwi. Now, are you guys familiar with Kiwi at all? No. Know a little bit about it, but not a lot. Well, so in a nutshell, what Kiwi is, is it allows you to kind of create your own distro off of OpenSUSE. So if you've got an application or maybe within your office... You want to, you know, just install certain files that are normally part of OpenSUSE within your office. You can build your own distro for it. So is this part of the SUSE build service then? Yes, it is. In fact, we get into a little bit about that during the interview. So, so let's go ahead and uh, actually hear from the developers what it is. Hi, this is Aaron, and today in the studio I've got Kulo. Kulo, hi. Uh, hi. Good morning. Good morning. Kulo, what's your full name? My full name is Stefan Kulo. And what do you do for us? I'm the project manager for OpenSUSE and the release manager of 10.3. Oh, cool. And I also have Jan here with me. Jan? Hello. And Jan, what's your full name? My full name is Jan Christoph Bornschlegel. And what do you do for us? I'm working on developing Kiwi further so we can use Kiwi in the far future to um, make our own CDs that oh, we produce cool. with AutoBuild um, at the time. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I asked you guys to sit down and talk to us today is specifically about install and what's happened with installs and what this Kiwi thing is that you just mentioned okay. and what's cool and new about that in 10.3. Kiwi is a, basically a tool to allow users to make images. The okay. user can use a repository from a build service or even a mounted CD and uh, edit a config file that Kiwi parses and then create uh, his own CD, adding his own packages just using these simple tools. Okay. Kiwi requires one package manager. Currently, it supports um, Zipper or Smart. Oh, excellent. And the one thing I did in the last few weeks is uh, preparing a preload image that you can dump on a hard disk. Okay. And on the first boot, it resizes the first partition, creates other partitions, creates a swap space, and boots so that the user can buy a machine with a pre-installed image, and when he turns it on for the first time, then everything is set up correctly. Oh, cool. Which actually worked using um, Smart and Kiwi version 1.59, I think. We should mention this Smart that he keeps on mentioning is a very, very cool package manager that does all sorts of neat things. And we'll go ahead and we'll put a link to the Smart page so that you can have all the information on Smart. Now, okay. when you're talking about images, what you're really talking about is, I just want to make sure that I understand this properly, it allows a company to take the 10.3 distribution and almost make their own custom 
sub-distribution exactly. for all their machines. So they can say, you know, we only want these packages installed. We don't want these packages. And then can I also add packages that aren't part of the 10.3? Yep, that's exactly the, the basic idea, that you take a, a base distribution released by us. Okay. And then you have your own tree in your company with, um, say, 100 RPMs that you want to install additionally. And then you prepare a config file for that and use Kiwi to prepare your own image from the mounted CD plus your personal tree. And then you can create a USB image or preload image or CD image or DVD or whatever and, and just give it around in your company and install from that. Oh, that's awesome. And then that could obviously contain all of the custom apps that people require, you know, whatever the email system is that we support internally. You know, if you're a bank, it might contain the client side of one of your uh, banking applications yeah, or what exactly. have you. That's the basic motivation behind that. And actually, I'd imagine that this is very cool for security reasons, because I could actually really limit some of the packages that are on the distribution that, again, if we're talking about somebody like a bank, they'd be able to really have a thin and lightweight OS down on those end devices so that they're much more like terminals. I veto here a bit <laughs> because security is not just about reducing things. It's also about being able to use the security updates that we provide as soon as you start playing with things and customizing it heavily, you really should be an expert in also in security. So as you said, it sounds like by customizing you add security, which won't stand as is. Sure. I want to mention because you are so enthusiastic about smart. Ah, yes. And the point is that the internally supported tool is super. Super is what Yast uses and uh, the super team always tries to persuade me that we make our internal things with super. Okay. Just to make the point that there are two competing systems and smart is, uh, we have no smart developer in-house, that's the point. Okay. And we moved over in the 10.3 release to use Zipper as the backend for the updater, correct? Uh, we had some issues with uh, Smart and Zipper because both tools didn't work at the same time with the same type of repository due to version conflicts and rapidly updating versions of Smart and of Zipper. And so before 10.3 release, it was a bit of uh, trouble with these two tools. You couldn't use them at the same time with the same config file. Okay. So this was a bit hacky. But now it's fixed? But now it's fixed, yeah. Now okay. we use Super internally, and the user in the outside world can choose whether to use Smart or Super. Oh, cool. But you're right. We're using it for the update applet. Super is the tool that replaced Rock and ZMD for 10.3. Oh, cool. And several other things have changed in 10.3 as far as installs go, right? We now have a live CD that people can use? Yes, we always had a live promo CD and a DVD with two desktops on them. What we tried for 10.3 is having a one CD for both desktops, one CD for KDE and one CD for GNOME, as you might already have downloaded it. And as we put the effort into reducing the packages to fit on one CD, we thought that it's time to also do this for the live image. So we used Kiwi to have a live CD for GNOME and a live CD for KDE. And during the hack week at Novell, there were two guys actually doing a live installer. So we thought it's a good idea to make use of the live image installer on these CDs. Okay, and when you say live image installer, you mean that I boot off of a CD, it gives me, you know, it detects my hardware, 
it then gives me a usable desktop that just running off the CD I can play with, which is the live part of it. And then from there, I can actually click on something and it'll start the install on my machine if I decide that, you know, I really like this OpenSUSE thing and I want to go ahead and make it permanently on my machine, right? Yes. So there will be a link from your desktop where it says install. If you click that, it will ask you some questions like you don't want to have the default root password from the live CD. Yeah, sure. And you can pick a time zone, which we obviously can't or don't want to ask on every live CD boot. Right. And then install on a partition. Oh, cool. So I'm used to doing installs by, you know, either doing a Pixie boot to an ISO or booting off of a DVD, not actually a CD. And, you know, it runs through and it asks me all sorts of questions about my machine. Is that the same type of experience that I'll have with this installable live CD? Or is it kind of a, an easier workflow that you go through? It's different. Okay. <laughs> If you're installed from a DVD or from this one CD, you will be asked for software selection. You will be asked for user partitioning and several questions for the live cd we don't ask for the software selection because we just assume you want this live image copied okay but we ask for some other questions including what hard disk should be partitioned or what swap space to be used in the final system and i, I don't have the exact steps in mind right now but But the basic yeah, things, the partitioning, the... The minimum. We tried to reduce this really to a minimum. Oh. There was then the question during the development if we should pick a keyboard layout because on the live CD, we run the keyboard switch applet by default with a set of popular keyboard layouts. Okay. We don't run everything, but you can configure it and we predefine for five or six layouts. So the Yast install part will ask the same question then and so that you have in your running system then you don't require this applet. Okay. And that actually brings up another question that I've got, the difference between the CD-based install and the DVD-based install. Because we've changed some things on this release where now instead of, you know, it used to be you could have one or two DVD install and then if you want the CD version, you downloaded four or five or however many CDs. This has changed in this release, hasn't it? Where now I've got my CD install is a single CD that I install that you were kind of mentioning just a minute ago is really kind of a good base OS, not a whole bunch of extras on it. It's just kind of what you need to get the machine up and running. And then you have the opportunity to add additional packages pulling from repositories over the internet, right? Not exactly right. The one CD has more than to get a machine up and running. It has an open office. It has all desktop. The difference between a default desktop installation from a DVD and a default desktop installation from a CD is like 30 packages. So it's not that big of a difference. Oh, it's just that I'm not offered all of those patterns that I am when I do the you, DVD you, install? Right. You don't have the option to install development packages. You won't have the option to install an Apache web server for all these And some more, and you need the DVD. Okay. Or I have to say that during the installation for all media, we offer the FTP repositories right during the installation. So if you're an online user, you can mm -hmm. download just one CD and install the basic desktop from this CD. You have to choose your desktop before downloading, but that's it. And install the rest 
from FTP repositories. I mean, that's actually very cool if I've got limited bandwidth, because then rather than having to download, you know, four gigs or eight gigs worth of DVDs, I download this one, you know, 650 meg CD or whatever it's at, boot off of that, like you said, do the install, and then I might only need another 30 or 90 megs worth of code. So I can easily just pull that across the wire. So that's actually really nice with people with limited bandwidth. Not too many of our users. I think we did a survey and 11% of our users use both desktops. So we thought it's saving more than 80% of our users download time if we split the desktops into the CDs. And when you're talking about desktops, what you're talking about is either KDE or GNOME. Um, are there any other cool things that we've changed about the install in 10.3? I would like to mention that we, in parallel to the live DVDs and CDs, we prepared some USB images that uh, give you one big advantage above the DVD because it is a rewrite system. You can boot from a USB stick, okay. a machine, and without mounting any hard disks, you can use your system and work with the system, store your emails and whatever which is stored on the USB device. So that's extremely cool. So what you're saying is I can take like uh, these cheap 2-gig little USB memory sticks... I can install one of those images on it, and then I can walk behind anybody's computer and it just set the exactly. BIOS up so that it boots off of the USB device, and I'll have my desktop with me with my bookmarks, my tomboy notes, and everything. That's exactly the, that is the point. That is extremely cool. The point is you all you have to do is uh, to get to a machine which you can actually boot from USB. That's all. Big security leak for internet cafes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's a security leak. However, we as Novell have a product that allows you to lock those USB devices off and uh, such. So there is the opportunity to lock those things down if you wanted to. But I have to give you a warning, everyone listening. I gave this USB image to my wife with a Beta 1 USB Live image, mm -hmm. and she didn't give it back to me since then. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you really want to be... Careful who you give it to. It does like a hardware detect when it comes up then to figure out the graphics card and the network card and everything? Yeah, we, there are some issues about that with the hardware detection. It I, didn't work on all machines sure. and didn't work with all hardware, but um, with most machines, I think with most, most machines we tested it, it worked pretty good. As a matter of fact, network cards are detected automatically since 10.1 uh, over Network Manager because you can plug in, plug out, and disable, enable uh, wireless. So that has always been this, the case, and we only configured it to use Network Manager. For graphics card, it's different. And of course, printers and such stuff are usually set up during installation mm -hmm. for for a normal installation, which you you will miss. So if you want to have your USB stick and plug it into different computers, you either have to do it full hardware configuration on every boot, or you have to live with some limitations on hardware support. Okay, sure. And that makes sense. Things like it's going to be tough to get something like XGL to work right when I boot off of that if I'm moving in between different video cards, I'd imagine. Yeah, also different resolutions is already a problem. Oh, actually. Mm -hmm. sure. So we talked about the Kiwi project at the beginning of this uh, talk, and we talked about how Kiwi allows me to customize and kind of create my own sub-distro or specific CD that's going to be used within my company. Can I combine that with the cool stuff you were just telling me with USB so that I could make my own custom distro and distribute it to my people via USB? 
Uh, the point is that I actually used Kiwi to make these USB images. Oh, That's cool. the point. I used Kiwi for USB and uh, Kulu used it for the live CDs. And I used it for the OEM boot um, image. That's all from one tool. It's just the difference in the config files. Okay. And can I change like what my front end? What if I don't use GNOME or I don't use KDE? I use something different. You just have to tell Kiwi what packages to install. Oh, very cool. You mentioned OEM build? Yeah, that was the uh, preload image that I mentioned, that you can dump on hard disk and then uh, everything okay. is set up on the first boot. Okay, so for people like uh, Dell or HP or whoever wants to redistribute this, it makes it easy for exactly. them. Exactly. Oh, very cool. And Kiwi is also able to create Xen images and QEMU images and VMware images, all from the same config files, basically. Oh, and, and when you mentioned Zen, you're talking about the XEN virtualization stuff. So I can use that kind of to build. That's actually very cool. So that maybe on my Blade servers or, you know, if I've got a bunch of boxes that I'm going to dedicate to virtualization, I could make that customized OS specific just to be an XEN host. And it saves you a CD if you first create an image. Oh, that's very cool. Jan, Kulu, thanks a lot for sitting down and explaining this to me. No problem. You're welcome. That's awesome. I need a copy of that USB image to put on my USB drive. Yeah, in fact, Martin was telling me this really cool thing that he did with it. He built a distro, put it on one of those little two gigs memory sticks, and then when he went to buy a new laptop, he went to a couple different computer stores, booted up off the memory stick to see if all of the different, you know, devices are recognized. You know, you get to find out, well, what type of wireless card do they That's have in awesome. there? Is it going to yeah. work? Yeah. Especially for, you know, I mean, there's so much goofy hardware where the modem's not really a modem. You know, it, it's only half a modem, but in order to get the firmware, you've got to be running Windows and it's built into the driver. You just get to figure out all the weird stuff about your hardware before you actually buy the thing. That's awesome. It's going to be a nice feeling to say, uh, to be in the computer store and say, I don't want that one. I want that one. Because yeah. I know it works. Yeah, you, you know that the drivers are easily available, that it's going to work and everything. So we've got another cool interview too. Have either of you guys ever heard of the Asterix servers? I was going to ask you, how do you pronounce it? Asterix, in Aaron's case. What about you, Randy? Asterisk? Uh, it's asterisk for me. Now, this is the... Now, I heard no IP. difference in between all three of the way that we pronounced it. So, I don't well, know what you're going at, Dave. Wherever it's called, it's a voice over IP PBX. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And what's neat is we're actually going to talk about how we're using it inside of Novell. Because it's not like... It could be a full-blown PBX within your environment, which is cool. But at the same time, you literally could use this to augment some of the maybe deficiencies that are in your existing PBX to add additional capabilities. So right. let's actually go and, and listen to what he has to say about telephony services and asterisks in OpenSUSE. Hi, this is Aaron, and today I'm sitting down with Reinhard Max. Reinhard, what do you normally do for us? What's your position? I'm the call to the systems team, and I'm maintaining several packages, amongst which are PostgreSQL, everything that's related to TCLTK, okay. and some telephony stuff such as Asterisk. Okay, and that's one of the things we asked you to talk to us about today was Asterisk and what's happening with Asterisk in 10.3. Actually, before you do that, can you kind of bring people up to speed as to what Asterisk is? Well, Asterisk 
started as a telephony server for Linux, even in the days before there was the big voice over IP hype. Okay. So it would support several sorts of, of telephony hardware to connect to traditional telephony networks, such as ISDN or T1, E1, the European counterpart, and even to analog lines and uh, analog phones. Yeah, those parts, right? Right. Okay. Well, then all the, the voice over IP protocols got added, such as SIP uh, and its own protocol, which is called IAX, Inter Asterisk Exchange Protocol. Okay. Also H323 and uh, some others. So now you can use it to, in, in, in various ways to, to connect uh, traditional telephony to voice over IP in all thinkable ways, given the various sorts of connections it supports. Okay. And it also acts as just a normal PBX, in effect, doesn't it? Right. Yeah, so I can uh, direct calls when they come in to certain phones or have an, uh, an operator's voice that comes on and says, press 1 to hit this person, 2 to hit this person. Exactly. And it would redirect them maybe to their cell phone, maybe to a voice over IP phone, maybe to a real telephone, right? That's it. And does it do uh, even stuff like record messages? Right. So. It, it has several um, so-called applications. For example, voicemail, conferencing, which we use oh, cool. internally as well, and various other stuff, music on hold, of course. And So it's really just a, a nice full PBX system. It is. Okay. Right. Now, how long has it been in the OpenSUSE distro? I think it was since maybe 9.1. I, I... Okay, so it's been around for a long time, but you've actually made a big change now in 10.3, haven't you? I have. I dropped it from the official main distribution, and um, I am about to move it to the OpenSUSE build service. Okay. So that we have a better chance to keep it up to date, because development on it is still going pretty fast. And so when we have it on the distro, we are locked, pretty much locked to that version for two years, have to backport uh, all the security fixes and stuff like that, are usually not allowed to do a version upgrade. Okay, But I think most of the OpenSUSE users who use something like Asterisk want to stay on the cutting edge or not too far behind it. And so they are better served with a version that uh, comes in the build service. And not keeping it on the official distro as well saves me the time to, to do all the backports and I can use that time to keep the build service version. Yeah, so actually what that means, and I know it sounds kind of weird until you really think about it, but what you're saying is it's a good thing that we pulled it out of the distro because now we can have it on auto build. There's a lot of heavy development going on on Asterix so that we can now get those updates directly from the auto build servers and not get it through the normal... Uh, right, and uh, not having to wait for the next version of the distro to get the latest right. and greatest asterisk version. Oh, very cool. And, and I suppose that also would work with the uh, new one-click install that we rolled out with 10.3. read about it, but I have not tried it yet. I don't know that much uh, details about the one-click... Uh... Well, what's neat is it, it works hand-in-hand -hand with AutoBuilder, and what it'll allow us to do is on the asterisk page on AutoBuilder, we'll just literally be able to put a link that you can click on to say, I want this installed, and it'll set up the proper repositories pointing to what you've got up on AutoBuilder for Asterix. It'll download, install Asterix, and do everything and make it real uh, simple for people to add Asterix to their right. servers. 
Cool. Now, you were telling me earlier that there's actually a couple of forks within Asterix? Yes. One thing is, uh, which is especially important for Europe and for Germany, because ISDN is uh, still heavy, heavily used here for telephony. There is a, a patch set called BRI stuff from okay. a German guy, and I always need to pull in that so, so uh, to, to improve ISDN support. Okay. With an asterisk and its hardware layer, which is called uh, Zaptel. Zaptel okay. uh, from Zaptel, as it comes from upstream, uh, doesn't have support for for ISDN, for basic rate ISDN, and so that patch adds that. Okay. And so I need to pull in that, and because of some licensing issues, that patch can't go upstream. Okay. So that's kind of a fork in form of a patch set, but there is another fork that already includes this this patch set and other patches and improvements. Okay. So one of the other advantages that we get by um, having this now sit down auto builder is you really can take control over when you get updates from Asterix, right? Yeah. It, which is really good because if you're running your company's telephone system on it, you probably want to be very, very careful and cautious before you just start to automatically upgrade the PBX because you don't want to have your whole company's phone system go down because it automatically updated. That's right. <laughs> Excellent. So we're actually using some of this technology in-house over here in the Nuremberg office, aren't we? We are. Okay. Can you describe to us what you're doing? Yes. We have a, an asterisk server that sits kind of behind the PBX. Okay. Um, has a, an internal 30-channel ISDN connection to the PBX, and it mainly acts as a conferencing server. So we are uh, holding internal tele uh, telephony conferences on that server, and it also acts as an internal voice over IP gateway. So various people who work from home office have a voice over IP connection to the Asterisk server. Okay. And they get an extension on the Nuremberg PBX. Okay. So they can be called from outside and from inside as if they would sitting would be sitting in the Nuremberg office. Oh, that, that's cool. So really what we've done is we've taken the existing PBX that we had, and there were some features and functionality that it didn't have that we wanted to add to it. So we just kind of bolted this asterisk server on the side. Right. Oh, that's cool. And it also does a, a connection to the Prague office. They also have an asterisk server running, and there's a, a, an interconnection between the two. Cool. And they use it also to, to call into the conferences, and they also use it to make international calls through the Nuremberg office because from Nuremberg, for example, calling to the U.S. is much cheaper than from the Czech Republic. So, so we are using it to actually save money. And that's probably automated, isn't it? It's not that I need to do something special. Is it just when I type in an international number... Asterix is intercepting that and then sending it through? I'm not sure how, how far uh, the, the configuration on the Prague side has gone. Okay. But I think they have to dial a prefix to, use, to actually use it. Okay. But we could make it. We are still building it up and uh, advancing it. And we could make it that way. Okay. You mentioned something about licensing earlier. Is it an open source project? How is it licensed? Do you know anything about that? It's GPL... But not quite. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, the original author, Mark Spencer, who founded Digium, the company who is mainly sponsoring it, asks people who contribute into the official asterisk 
to give Digium the right to sell commercial versions of Asterisk that are not GPL. And some of the contributors are okay with that. Some aren't because they have businesses of their own who also don't get that kind of privileges. Sure. Or even they are using third-party GPL code and are not even in the position to sign it off or to, to license it in that way to DGM. And uh, that's why we see the official asterisk with all the contributions that uh, have been signed off and those forks and patch sets, which for various uh, reasons can't get licensed that way to DGM and therefore can't go into the official asterisk. Oh, cool. All right. Okay, so earlier you were talking about people who have remote offices, like in their house and everything, doing voice over IP from their house to the asterisk server, and then it appears as if they're in the office, they've got a real extension. What are they doing on the client side? How are they getting that connection? Is there um, like a voice over IP client that they run on their machine? Some do that, and others uh, just use voice over IP hardware phones sure. in their home offices. Most of them connect either hard or soft phone connect to the asterisk server using the SIP protocol. Okay. Do you have any idea what clients are actually supported? What software clients? Asterisk supports every client that speaks either SIP or IAX or H323. Okay. And the clients we have included in the distro are Twinkle, Ekiga, Kphone, and Kiax. Depending on the situation, on the network setup from where you use them, in some situations, um, some work better than others. Or the I other imagine you've got to worry about all <laughs> the networking stuff, like are you behind in that? Do you have a legitimate IP address? All sorts of things like right. that. Excellent. Well, cool. Well, thanks a lot for sitting down and explaining this all to us. And it sounds like you had some fun over in Germany. Yeah, actually, I, I did have a blast. Of course, the, the guys over in the Nuremberg office are just so much fun to hang out with. And amazing capabilities, amazing abilities, great bunch of guys. Yeah, the cool thing about the Asterix server, like he talked about in the interview, is there's just so much momentum behind it, and there's so much stuff happening right now. It's just a, a really good example of a cool, shining open source project where lots of different people are contributing, jumping in, and helping on, out on it, regardless of what their favorite distro happens to be. That's what open source is all about. Absolutely. And that's it for this episode of Novell Open Audio. Thanks for listening. I'm David Mayer. I'm Randy Goddard. And I'm Aaron Quill. See you guys next time on Novell Open Audio. Remember that Novell Open Audio is brought to you by Novell Users International, as well as Novell Incorporated. Most of our content is directed by our listener community. So please send us your feedback by email at openaudio at novell.com or by leaving comments on our website at novell.com slash openaudio. That's it for this time. Have a good one. <laughs>